Welcome to Healthcare Inspired, the podcast that bridges the gap between clinical expertise and business innovation, all with a single purpose, improving patient care. Get ready to be inspired as we bring you thought-provoking discussions, captivating stories, and groundbreaking insights from leading experts in healthcare. Join your host, Jennifer McNamara, on a journey of discovery as she connects the dots, revealing the synergies between clinical and business teams. Each episode, we'll delve into the latest healthcare trends, uncover innovative solutions, and share success stories that will motivate and ignite change. So get ready to embark on a path of inspiration, knowledge, and transformation. Here is your host, Jennifer McNamara. Welcome back to the Healthcare Inspired Podcast. This is episode four of our first season. We are continuing. It's our third installment of our discussion about denials and claims management. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper as we talked about previously. We, we talked about just the regular front-end denials that we get that stop the claim. We've talked about benefits in general, understanding your patient. And now we're going to talk about the back end. So today's episode is really going to dive into understanding um, some of the concepts of coding and appeals. We're going to go behind the scenes. We're going to try to decode, as it were, these back end denials that we get and try to figure out how we can still capture revenue when we have these roadblocks. So welcome back to the show, Maya. How you been doing? You know, I've been doing uh, pretty good, uh, you know, other than, you know, the daily, daily grind, you know, you still have to maintain. So I've, I've, been, do- I've, been, do- I've been doing pretty good, you know, the, the calls and all that. It's just the daily grind of the norm. But I, I, I can't, can't complain about too much of anything. I can complain, but it probably wouldn't mean much because people wouldn't listen. So there you go. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, we all complain about something, right? I mean, I would just love to complain about this Southern heat that I'm dealing with. I am just not a fan of this kind of heat. You know, I grew up in California, different kind of heat. I had the beach near me. It was different, right? So if you're on the West Coast, yeah, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? Or if you're in the South, you know what I'm talking about. If you're in Florida, you know what I'm talking about. Like it's, it's yucky, right? Now, there's going to be lots of talk, of course, as we get through this year and next year. Um, there's still a lot of talk and confusion about a lot of things when it comes to revenue cycle. We, we just have to navigate so many things and we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes, but we need to try to figure out a way to rely on each other. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that we got connected and we were able to do this yes. together and, and help more people. But there's so yeah. many out that they just don't know where to turn. They're they're new yeah. or maybe they just were yeah. never yeah. told this is wrong. This is not the way to do things. Just want to break it up, you know, right? just kind of talk about these things. So we're going to start out today and just kind of talk about some of the common denials related to coding, first of all. And then we'll get into some some tips maybe that can help you with understanding mm-hmm. your appeal process a little bit better, right? So first of all, Maya, basically incorrect or incomplete. Like those are some of the things that we see. When we think about an incorrect or incomplete coding, we're thinking about, of course, denials. Things mm-hmm. such as maybe the diagnosis or procedure codes are just wrong and they don't accurately reflect the services that were actually rendered. Now, from right. an insurance standpoint, they're not going to know that necessarily on you know right away. They may request records. And then yeah. they find out straight up red flags, right? Like you have a yeah, left yeah. Knee, knee, knee replacement with right osteoarthritis. I can't say this enough. Your coding is as good as your resources, period. 
because I've seen practices work with two year behind books because the physician or the administration maybe doesn't have the, the money or what have you. And it becomes a challenge because maybe they don't know that a code has changed. Maybe they don't know that laterality isn't important and you need to code to the sixth digit uh, or the seventh digit. All of those things are relative, but when you have an outdated super bill or, and I'm speaking of the smaller practices now, if you have an outdated super bill or if you have outdated uh, uh, a practice management system or billing system, you're as good as that resource. So when that claims go out the door, you're dealing with old edits, you're dealing with old ICD-10 codes, you're dealing with old procedure codes. You're as good as what, your claims are as good as, as current as the information. If there's no uh, point of reference to anything that's current, you're really at a disadvantage and you really are only getting probably 50% of the claims that come out. So it really does make a difference. Make it a point to be current, make it a point to find out what's out there. These conversations that Jennifer is doing through Healthcare Inspired is so important because coders are as good as their resources. AAPCs codify. You have so many free resources out there, but you got to know that they're out there. And one, you got to know to look at them because there's as good as the usage. And if you don't have it, it's not going to make a bit of sense. And it's going to make that much of a difference when those claims come back, where they're rejected or denied completely. Mm -hmm. I just can't, I can't tell you how important that is. You know, we talk about these resources that we have, part of those resources, and I am not against encoders. I've talked about them before, they're great. I still want you coders out there and you to rely on the actual books, right? <laughs> our books, our our actual books, guys. Like it's it's yeah. it's yes, it's 2023, we're digital. You can do ebooks, but still please, yeah. please, please use those books because there is a process. Mm. We're seeing huge issues because of not understanding how to use those books. But let's go back to just talk about our encoders, for instance. There's yeah. a great little feature, right? Our CCI checker, correct coding initiative checker, right? Yes. You put the codes in, check them, right? And then yes. you you see the little nice little pretty little lines that say, okay, line one, yes. Line two, maybe. Let's add a modifier, maybe. A lot of coders take that to mean not maybe, but yes, I'm going to put it on there. Like, girl, I'm, just, I'm trying to hold my peace, girl. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, girl. I'm just, yes. it's, yes. it's frustrating because, and I say it all the time, it's not a blank check to add a modifier. Um, so let me take this for a second, Maya. Let me just break this down. When I look at something called the PTP edits, we some people don't understand what this is. It's a file, um, a spreadsheet, and people look at it and they don't necessarily know what it, what it's for. But let me break it down for you. Anytime you go into your encoder and you see those, those two lines, the first line's payable, the second line says you might need a modifier, they're saying yes column one in that file if you i'm a spreadsheet girl so i know how to read them i hope that others do as well they're great but you don't need an encoder to know yes. how to use this file you just right. download it and we'll put a copy of that link in our show notes so everyone mm -hmm. i'm going to walk you through this guys you download that file first column payable if your other code exists in the second column indicator of one in the indicator column right that yes. means, and it, the file is very clear. It tells you what each indicator means, zero, one, or nine, if it's there, right? If you have a reason to add that modifier. 
you don't just add it. It's not a blank check, like I said. Now, if it's right. a procedure, we have modifier 59, right? If it's an E&M code, we have modifier 25. Yes. You know, and and this is interesting. And and I have to I have to kind of really look at this because I was a biller before I was a coder and then I wanted to compliance. So, you know, a lot of these things called NCCI edits. I was like, what is what is that? I don't and I promise you that once you learn that these resources are out there, and like you said, free, it'll change your world. I mean, and I, when I say I'm not a fan of spreadsheets, I like tables, but I don't like spreadsheets. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I should, I should know how to read them. And it's really interesting because if you do not have the right system edits loaded, it will ask you to put a modifier on those types of procedures when it's not needed. So I think we talked yep. about uh, the first episode, how um, you're as good as the system and the NCC edits and how mm -hmm. your system and how it's built is going to make that much of a difference. Again, your billing and your claims are as good as how those things are referenced and built into your practice management system, period. And I can tell you a bazillion and one times when you have these people who have no clue who are non-coders, don't have any clue of how to code, tell you that this is right. It's not right. I am a coder. Listen to me. I am trying to tell you something so that your system is not bottlenecking claims and bottlenecking revenue. So again, knowing your system in and out, making sure that those NCC edits are valid. And so mm -hmm. when those claims go out the door and you know a modifier 25 does not go on lab or does not go on an x-ray, then you can remove those things and be confident that claim is still gonna be paid because the NCC edits are incorrect and they should be removed if it's wrong. Exactly. And, you know, we, we talked about this common modifier misuse. When I do audits, you know, people can ask me to come in and check their, 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 their revenue and their data to see where there's revenue leaks. I'm telling you, the majority of them are modifier usage. They chose yes. the right CPT code. I'm not mm -hmm. questioning their, their knowledge of how to pick the right CPT code. It's always having to do with getting paid because of a modifier misuse. It's not about you not being a good coder. It's about you understanding the payer and what mm -hmm. they want. Absolutely. And you know, it's uh, this is such a hot topic and it, I'm, I'm so excited. And sometimes you just get so excited, you don't know where to begin. So this is like so cool. Um, and to have these types of venues, to have these types of discussions where coders are just really just lost because they're driven of what the physician tells them the bill rather than what's correct. You really have to have a gauge. And this is the perfect platform to really discuss that. So I really give you kudos and applaud, you know, uh, this venue, Jennifer, because I can't tell you how important this is for people who really are mm -hmm. working in those small offices and really are trying to get that raise or really trying to create more resources for the doctor, like a current CPT book. But I have to say that NCCI edits, modifiers, it's correct usage. If you're a proceduralist, and adding a modifier incorrectly when it's within the post-operative period. So understanding all of the, the idiosyncrasies, uh, granularity behind procedures that are billed. You know, just because a provider doesn't see the patient within the first 10 days and they're coming to follow up, 
and they're okay doesn't mean that you should put a modifier if that's the first visit. Maybe you don't have the availability, but if you still know that you're able to uh, utilize a modifier and it's done incorrectly and it's not medically necessary for you to build that service, you potentially have a problem because you're really abusing the fact that you don't have any availability when there's really nothing being managed other than that post-operative visit. So those types of things you really have to be careful about, especially when you're dealing with certain things that may or may not meet regulatory requirements. So all of those things really, you know, listen to us. Uh, we, we really are trying to lay some knowledge. And I'm telling you, if you don't do it the right way, what's done in the dark is going to come to light. If you fraudulently build something or if you do something mm -hmm. abusingly, you're, you just are not making yourself the coder that you've been trained to be certified in if you're letting someone else dictate how you bill, period. Exactly. So um, something recently came my way that I think a lot of coders need to understand. And we did put a survey out there on LinkedIn. I was approached by a, a, a previous colleague that I worked with and uh, in the oncology space when it comes to new versus established. Either you had your physician or a qualified healthcare professional, maybe your mid-level, your NP or your PA saw the patient. You're part of the same text ID, right? So, or, But if you are part of the same group, right? They mentioned same group. They mentioned specialty or subspecialty. It's not very difficult to understand same group, right? Because that's pretty clearly seen. Right. What is unseen to some practices is the specialty and subspecialty. A lot of practices are losing money because mm -hmm. what's happening is they are billing at, or at, told to bill as an established patient because a radiation oncologist saw the patient, but hey, a medonc or, or a surgeon mm -hmm. saw the patient within the last three years. So they're part of the same group, right? Great. And they were mistakenly thinking that they were part of the same subspecialty because it's oncology. If you were to actually do your homework, and understand your specialty and subspecialty, you would realize that radiation oncologists are classified under radiology. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Medical oncologists, they are classified as internal medicine. If you are a radiation oncologist, you can bill a new patient because you are not of the same uh, specialty. So you need to understand that designation and you can lose a lot of money. And I imagine this facility that mistakenly under thought that and had a policy written on that is probably going to look at their data and look at the revenue and say, how much money did we lose? Because we were billing this wrong. First of all, let's talk about primary care and then subspecialties and, and things in, in general. Okay. Mm -hmm. First of all, when it comes to specialties in, in general, they go by what's called a taxonomy number. That taxonomy number is going to identify everything that Medicare believes to be in the same specialty. It's usually a two-digit number. Um, some of them are two numbers. Some of them is a letter and a number. But for the most part, they separately identify what is considered the same specialty and or subspecialty. Um, and if you look at internal med, family medicine, pediatrics, all of them have different taxonomy numbers. So therefore, they can be billed separately for new patient versus established, even though they're in the same office. They're still technically a different specialty in Medicare's eyes. Now, what happens is a lot of people are driving the tax ID number as new versus established because they're all under the tax ID number. 
recently when that split share thing nightmare happened, Medicare removed their definition of group by removing the tax ID and letting the groups decide that. I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's what they did. So, okay. If you know your group to be of a separate taxonomy number, first of all, go on the Medicare website. There are resources. You can tell which groups are uh, under a subspecialty versus a, a specialty, one. And then two, if they fall under the same two-digit code, you can follow it all the way down and you see that it fall, your specialty falls under there, they are the same specialty and you cannot bill. I get that a lot with maternal fetal medicine and OB. I get that a lot with internal med and family med. I get that a lot with um, uh, sports medicine versus ortho. Again, if they fall under the same taxonomy, they are of the same. You cannot bill new versus established. However, if they fall under a different taxonomy, then technically you can bill new versus established, even if they're credentialed with two different specialties. We typically go by the primary one, but that's that's a different show. I'm actually doing a workshop on that. That's so ironic that we're talking about this. Great minds think alike for a, uh, a uh, AAPC uh, chapter about taxonomies and understanding how and how you are to make that determination is gonna make the huge difference. I can't tell you how many people have lost revenue because they think that they can't bill. You can't, I can't build this because no, even if they're a different organization of you, if they're of a different organization and you're the same specialty, you still can build because you're distinct, you're separate organizations. So that makes a huge difference. Oh girl, that's, that's, that's hot right there. That's, that's something that, um, I get a lot of questions about mm -hmm. and it's all about understanding your resources, what's available. There's mm -hmm. uh, a website that's out there, the national specialty billing uh, reference where it talks about all of that. And then whose uh, definition you're gonna go under. If you go by AMA guidelines and you're an APP and you're collaborating with the office, AMA says that you work with as that same specialty as who you're collaborating with. So that also mm -hmm. makes a difference. If you're going by CMS, uh, APP has their own specialty. Um, so again, it all kind of, goes by how you're uh, making the determination, but you also have to have policies in place. If you don't have any policies in place, it's gonna make a difference. So let me get off my soapbox because I can talk about that forever, girl. <laughs> oh, no, no, you're good, you're good. Um, one of the things that, of course, I'll just touch on briefly, then we'll talk about some other things like compliance and, and appeals and stuff. But what I wanted to kind of uh, come back to is when I mentioned earlier, medical necessity is our LCD policies. Yes. And, uh, you know, we historically, we work with providers, they're, especially if they work in a facility, they're, they're told, you know, you're, they're paid by RVUs, right? That's how they're paid. Yes. And so their, their focus is CPT. This has this many RVUs. I have to have this many surgeries or whatever. They're, they're counting up RVUs and then they know they're getting paid by that. So that's their focus, right? Sometimes what suffers is the medical necessity and they're not quite up to date on, yes, this patient needs this procedure, but their insurance policy will only cover it for certain conditions. LCDs and NCDs are very specific. They deal with the primary diagnoses. They also deal with the procedure. But when you're talking about the difference between NCDs and LCDs, LCDs are local, NCDs are national. But local determinations is based upon who your MAC is. But you have to know, some policies or some carriers don't have 
a policy on certain things. You really just, you're, you're as good as, your, and I, I can't say this enough, you're as good as your resources. If you don't know what your resources are, if you don't know what your NCDs are versus your LCDs and knowing your NCCI edits and your P2P uh, information, it's really gonna make a huge difference on how much income you're gonna bring in your office. Your billers are as good as how current they are as far as information. If you go by what your physician says, the NCDs and the LCDs are not even gonna matter because you're gonna go by what they say. But if you wanna make sure you're making that money and you wanna make sure that you get that raise every year and there's money to make that raise, you're gonna know what your NCCI edits is, your LCD and your NCDs. You're gonna know all of that. And it's all gonna be driven by what the procedure is and how um, the primary procedure code is gonna be going out or your um, primary diagnosis code is gonna go out. It, it, that's just mm -hmm. plain and simple. Yep. yep. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Yes, ma'am. So one thing that happened to me recently, and I, I was having a conversation, of course, we just had our Bone and Joint Summit, and we had a great speaker. Um, I want to shout out to Tanya Silva, excellent consultant in podiatry. And so one of the things I wanted mm -hmm. to point out, you probably know this too, is we have routine foot care. There's a huge LCD for it. It's not covered by Medicare unless you have certain conditions, right? So many coders are confused. And so I get on like these social media platforms and there's these groups and they're asking these questions. How do I handle this? How do I handle that? And so I'm so glad, thank you, Tanya, for bringing this up at the conference is that you got to stop asking other people and other Macs how to do your job because Ooh. it's different in every Mac. So I applaud you, Tanya, for bringing this up to stop asking other people to do your job for you, get to know your Mac. Or if you have a question, find somebody in your Mac who understands it. Don't go asking people across the country who are going to tell you something different because, hey, guess what? In their region, it is different. Yes. <laughs> my soapbox, girl. That's why I love doing this. I'm telling you what. In my career, girl, I'm sure you feel the same. I've been told you can't do that. You can't say that. It doesn't leave a good image because you represent the company and all of this. And I'm like, well, you know what? You know, we can't be afraid to say what needs to be said. I'm not trying to be, you know, against hospitals or against some of these, these entities that are trying to do what's right. But there's a lot of people who are shady. There's a lot of people who are trying to screw the system just to get paid. Do you know where you can find that information? HHS.gov. You can find all those things mm -hmm. of, uh, about people that are behind bars because they wanted to screw the system and they wanted to get paid now instead of waiting, yes. waiting for the right information and, and having conversations that could get you paid and let you keep your money. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? It's just... Because I, I mean, and because I deal a lot with the podiatry. I mean, we have a 1,000 um, physician practice within my organization, and podiatry is one, ortho is one. And there's a huge difference between foot and ankle care and actual podiatry. And so mm -hmm. when we talk about um, podiatry and, and the do's and don'ts and how certain things cannot be diagnosed by the podiatry and, uh, mm -hmm. and how um, certain levels of service, if you go beyond certain levels of service, you got to watch that between the payers and Medicaid and Medicare. All of that is a huge difference. So you need to know, you need to research, put the work in if you expect the quality to come out. Be willing to extend yourself. Be willing to be, and, and I think another thing is, and, and, uh, I, and I have to say this too, Jennifer, is that just because you know how to build one thing does not need to know, mean that you know how to build everything. Be specific, understand your role, understand your boundaries. But if you want to be an expert, 
make sure you're the expert on that one thing doesn't mean that you need to be the expert in everything. If you know your focus is one thing and you feel that you have the expertise to expand, then do the research to make sure you're good at everything. Don't say just because we do it this way for this practice should be the same for this practice. Know your role, know your lane, and be the expert in that. And then once you explore something that you may have some, some knowledge in, then go to that, uh, that uh, area. But don't think just because you know how to do one thing, you know how to do everything because it's not the same for everything. Real talk. Real talk. Yes, girl. So, um, yes. So the reason we're telling all you this out there, you listeners, is because we're trying to prevent you from creating more audit risks for yourself. And a lot of people go into this and audits are the last thing on their mind that is mm -hmm. not on their radar until it becomes on their radar because they get audited. Now, I wanted to ask this question when we think about auditing, how do coding compliance and regular audits help improve accuracy and prevent denials? How does that all work together? Okay. So being in the coding compliance realm for about 10 years now, the last, well, gosh, more than 10 years, about 12 years now, it prevents risk. The purpose of audits is to prevent risk. The best way to explain this is that coding compliance audits are literally feedback based upon us looking at your documentation, the services that are billed associated with the diagnoses, does it match? And that we provide feedback to the provider, whether it be an NP or an APP or a physician, um, if it's split shared, if it's co-surgeons, um, all of that can make a difference on whether you could be a target. Um, if you've known anything about what Medicare does, they had the Target and Probe and Educate program. If you were targeted and your claims were at risk, those types of things that our audit would typically do was really just tell you, okay, if you're billing this, you're doing this and you need to tweak this. But it really is just feedback based upon regulatory guidelines that could put you at risk or not period. And it's not meant to say that you're doing something wrong, but it's to help tweak and that it doesn't present risk if someone looks at it from the back end and doesn't know you. And it could make, it could read the same way, whether you're someone that works in the office or someone who is, um, you know, part of a third party organization or even a rack, it's going to make, it's going to read the same way, no matter who looks at it. But it really is just feedback to help you make sure that if your claims are audited, it definitely can pass, period. Because if you don't have mm -hmm. audits, if you don't have anyone looking at your claims on the back end, you're definitely putting yourself at risk. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, we had a provider who was their biller, who was, the, who was billing everything that they uh, saw their patients for. And she had no one looking at anything. And it was like, she was getting a lot of denials. And I'm like, you're setting yourself for an audit. You need to have someone, either you're going to pay somebody to come and look at those claims and you're going to make sure that you have some feedback that would benefit you because too many denials is saying that you're at risk. If you find yourself in a practice where nothing is being paid, guess what? Somebody is noticing that and you're going to be setting yourself for an audit. So word to advice, look at, have someone look at your claims, have someone know what um, you're billing and look at the documentation so that it's audit proof.
Excellent, excellent. Now, one of the things that audits do is they help improve your process or identify where there's a breakdown in your processes. So for instance, if I see routine practice, you know, process that they're adding that most of their claims have an unspecified diagnosis code in the primary spot, it's a quick red flag for me that someone is not checking this, that it's just getting pulled by the physician and getting out the door. Maybe the coders are working on the back end. So there's not any front end checking by an actual coder. It's very clear red flag that there is a breakdown in process because an, an average coder who is trained is going to catch those things. It's not going to get coded that way from the beginning. They're going to know that. Clear indication to me without even meeting you, without even meeting you as a practice, I can tell just from your data what your process is because you are missing a piece that would not have happened if you had a coder reviewing these things from the beginning. Uh, so those are the things that, that that tells me. The other thing that I'm concerned with is when I look at consistent mistakes where it's obvious that payer-specific rules have been ignored. And I know, for instance, if I see the payer is Medicare and I know there's a code that exists, a G code, for instance, for this certain service, I know you have ignored payer-specific rules and your facility is not up to date on that. You're not trained. You're not getting yeah. training on, on paying attention to these payer-specific rules. Those are some, some examples that I would consistently see just from your data without even meeting you. I just encourage you practices out there, if you don't have regular audits or at least some data reviews, contact us. Let us just run through your data for six months. Let us identify some trends that you don't even have to have a full audit. We can just do a quick assessment for you. And if you decide from that assessment that you want to have a, a full audit of maybe 10 to 15 charts per physician, we can also help you with that. But make sure you're at least doing, at, at bare minimum, a quick data assessment to look for trends for your practice. So contact us at healthcareinspiredllc.com and we'll help you with that. But let's talk about appeals next, Maya. I recently worked with a practice and a lot of physicians were kind of upset because they were used to, when they were in private practice, making a lot more money. And we know things have changed. What I'm also considering is these larger organizations may not have the bandwidth or the AR teams to work these mm -hmm. denials. And so what's happening is there, there's so many denials, right? They don't know where they're coming from, why it doesn't get appealed. I'm so excited because this is all so relevant. So let's revisit what the difference between a rejection and a denial. A rejection, again, is that something is missing or incomplete. A denial is timely filing. Uh, something is wrong. Um, maybe they've missed uh, or they're they're ineligible as of yet. Um, but all understanding the cogs that are in the wheel that makes the difference between a rejection and a denial. Maybe the patient is not eligible for the services yet due to frequency. Maybe the denial is based upon timely filing, but you got a determination stating that the patient was, for whatever reason, um, maybe they had a COB issue because we talked about that in a previous episode. So knowing the difference of when and how your claim can be appealed once denied versus rejected, um, it, it's all uh, the difference in how you're understanding uh, what type of denial it is. And B, if the patient was ineligible, that's a denial because that patient doesn't have coverage versus someone who maybe they were a baby that was born and, and maybe um, they're not eligible because they haven't been added it yet and they it's been past 30 days. So all of those things make a difference in how your claims can be appealed once it's rejected versus denied. So it's a, it, there's just a huge difference in so many variances and understanding um, 
how and what can be appealed versus something that is completely denied and, and not appealable. But your process is going to make the difference in what's in the system, what's not. I remember when I was a uh, claims adjudicator, you know, that uh, a patient could have up to 30 days if they're a mom to add their, uh, their name to uh, the coverage. If a claim is considered and, and filed, again, you have to make sure that that patient has added that baby to the insurance. Just because the baby isn't added yet doesn't mean it's a complete denial. Wait for the mom to add the baby so that you can send those pediatric claims for, for processing. All of that stuff makes a difference. But if you don't know it, it's not going to happen for you. And that's money that's sitting on the table. Another thing that I also find from time to time, and even when I worked at the hospital, it was my job to look at this report as the biller and coder, because some of these issues were coding related. So we would open up our queue in one of our, at our EMR system, our billing system, and we would open up our queue and we would look and see if there were anything um, in the zero pay report. So this was a report where the insurance paid zero and it may have been because it was a non-covered situation. It may have been a mistake that somebody just um, at the insurance company made an error. And there are so many claims I found on a zero pay report that were completely payable, but it was an error on the insurance part. It could be a coding issue. It could be a, an insurance issue. But if you're not looking at those things, you could be losing hundreds of thousands of dollars that are just totally payable, but nobody mm -hmm. wants to report. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of times, like we talked about before, uh, the predetermination or the pre-authorization, there could be a pre-authorization off there and they'll deny the claim not even researching the system that it was already pre-authorized. We've had, I've had to do that too, where they'll just completely deny it and say, oh, well, we're not going to pay this. Well, there's a predetermination out there, but it's all about picking up the phone. Don't think because you're a biller or you're a coder and you're working denials that you can't call the insurance company and correct them. We have this, pull out that file, be organized, pull out the file. This determination was sent on uh, August 1 and you're denying this and it was September 1 but we have a predetermination when the adjudicator looks at the claim they didn't even pull that information up so it's all about being organized having your resources and making sure that everything that's related to that claim anything that was done prior to that claim being submitted is all in the file so that when you call that insurance company you have your ducks in a row and they can claim it. oh we're sorry we can have this reprocessed for you give us 14 days and you'll get your payment I've seen that and those are music to my ears because you are organized enough to know that this was already taken care of and you've done your job. You need to make sure you do yours. <laughs> 100%. Exactly. So I think this is a great, a great conversation, you know, in review, everyone just make sure that if you're a supervisor or manager, you have that power to make decisions please make sure your teams have the resources that they need and the education they need. If you are a facility that is, of course, concerned about risk, which you should be, you should be having mm -hmm. external audits. Yes. It's, it's important to keep the integrity of your organization. And speaking of integrity, I, I encourage you to attend the conference in Charleston for the NamUs um, annual conference. And I will be speaking with Ms. Christine Hall on revenue integrity, a two-part session. We encourage you to get on out to Charleston and see us in December. <laughs> Put the information in our show notes for you. Um, continue to really enhance your efficiency in your practices, process improvement, strengthen those payer relationships. 
Um, so these are some of the things that we can we can offer you um, to help your practice. So reach out to us. And Maya, thank you for joining us these last few episodes. It's been a great, great, great treat to have you on the show. Thank you so much. This is just, it revived the side of the billing. I mean, but understanding the difference between coding and billing, right? And understanding that it's okay to be both, but you got to know the difference and you have to know that there is no limitation, but you need to know that if you're a biller, you're doing this and you're looking at this. If you're a coder, you're looking at this and you're doing this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the same. It just means that you know need to know the difference between the two. Excellent, excellent stuff. Well, everyone, we have some great episodes in store for you. We have some great um, episodes coming forward uh, from leadership talks, and we're also going to have some information on CDI. So stay tuned for our next few episodes. I want to thank our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Healthcare Inspired. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you thought of the show. To learn more about Jennifer McNamara and her team at Healthcare Inspired, including how to hire their exceptional data team, visit www.healthcareinspiredllc.com. Thank you once again for joining us on this journey of inspiration and transformation. Together, let's shape the future of patient care. Healthcare Inspired is brought to you by Healthcare Inspired LLC. The show is produced by Highland Productions. Our executive producer is Jennifer McNamara. All music is composed by Gabriel Fast.